you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. If you've been captivated by The Reporter's Notebook and just need a little bit more content between seasons, crack open some unsolved Pennsylvania cases on the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Hi, I'm Sarah, one of the hosts of KCC, and our goal through our podcast is to reignite the cases that have been lost and forgotten to time in the hopes of bringing new tips to investigators and closure to the families of victims. When you find us on any podcasting app, you'll hear stories from one host at a time with a discussion from the other three co-hosts. Dive into what happened to the young boy found in a box outside of Philadelphia, listen to the details of missing district attorney Ray Greekar, or choose any of the other captivating mysteries. Then hop over to our blog or social media pages and discuss your theories with us. For more information, check out kccpod.com or search for Keystone Cold Cases on any podcasting app for new cases each week to sleuth out. In 1920s Los Angeles, the mother-daughter duo of May Otis Blackburn and Ruth Wheeland ran a female-dominated religious cult. The Blackburn cult, as it was called in the newspapers of the time, but formerly known as the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven, came to the attention of the LAPD after a fraud investigation. But following the clues soon led to revelations of far worse offenses than simple fraud. At least one death was attributed to the cult, and several others were suspected. This is episode 96, and this is the first part of the story of the Cult of the Great Eleven. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. The term cult is one whose use has changed over time. Originally, almost any faction or social division could technically be termed a cult. The term, of course, came to be associated almost exclusively with religion, and even in this case, while more established and widespread religions like Christianity or Judaism are still cults by definition, most wouldn't use the word in that instance. The word began to be associated with not just religion, but almost exclusively ones that seem strange or unusual. Quite often, the term implies a degree of fraud or quote-unquote shadiness. While cults in this sense have been with us probably since the Bible was first printed, allowing for personal interpretation of religious doctrine, their numbers seem to have exploded in the 19th century, coinciding with the rise of spiritualism. One cult whose origins are somewhat cloudy 
sprang up in Los Angeles of the 1920s. The two leaders of the cult were women, as were most of the highest-ranking members. On August 2, 1881, May Otis was born in Storm Lake, Iowa, about 60 miles northeast of Sioux City, to William and Jenny Otis. William died sometime prior to 1885. A lawsuit filed against the Denver City Railroad around that time by his widow might indicate that he died in a train accident. May's mother eventually remarried a man named Edgar Holt, and the trio moved to Minnesota. It was here that the 16-year-old May married Augustus John Wheeland, 10 years her senior. In 1898, Ruth Angeline Wheeland, May's daughter, was born. The couple was at the time living in Elk Point, South Dakota. The marriage of Otis and Wheeland, though, was far from a good one. In fact, before Ruth was even born, the two had already split up. May was at least to claim that her husband was a habitual gambler. She would also later prove to be a liar, so who knows what the case might actually have been. According to her, around the time of her daughter's birth in 1899, she received a letter from a doctor in California informing her that a man named Jack Wheeland, who proved to be her husband under an assumed name, was shot and killed. In 1900, she left her daughter to be cared for by her own mother and stepfather and went to Minneapolis. Here, she married a second time to a man named Rudolf Schultz. For some reason, although open about being a widow, she never told her new husband that she had a daughter. Oddly, though, she did tell him about Ruth, but claimed she was her sister. When her parents moved to Washington State, she began to pressure her husband to move so that she could join him and her quote-unquote younger sister, Ruth. For all that May lied to her husband about Ruth's actual identity, it seems that her parents played along, and Ruth also seems to have been ignorant of the fact that May wasn't her sister. The Schultzes joined the Holtz in the Northwest, and all seemed fine for a bit. In 1906, she claimed to have learned that her former husband, Augustus Wheeland, had not been killed as she thought, but was still alive. Apparently, she told Schultz this and said she'd have to leave him. In 1908, the saga of May Otis and Augustus Wheeland took another turn. May's mother got a letter from a man named John Worthy, who said that Wheeland had died in Alaska. She later told a judge that until this moment, she believed her former husband to be alive, contrary to what she had earlier told Schultz. She eventually tracked down John Worthy in Tacoma and found that he was none other than Augustus Wheeland himself. She filed a lawsuit, claiming that her husband had deceived her and faked his own death in order to get out of the marriage, and later that year, formally filed for divorce. By the following year, though, May is once more described as a widow. At this time, both of her former husbands were still alive. She was in turn sued by Rudolf Schultz in 1911, in which the claim was made that she had never actually been legally married to Augustus Wheeland, owing to the fact that she had another marriage before him. Of course, she married Wheeland when she was only 16, making the likelihood of a previous marriage unlikely, to say the least. So in his mind, that marriage was null and void, meaning that he in turn was legally married to May and deserved half her assets. Edgar Holt died around 1912, 
with Jenny Otis remarrying to English-born Walter Blackburn. Walter brought with him a son, Ward. As for May Otis, after her divorce from Rudolf Schultz, she began an affair with a wealthy married lumberman named Fremont Everett. In May of 1915, she remarried for a third time to a man from Vancouver, Washington named George Bloom. It came to light that he had been charged with three unnamed offenses in 1912 and that there was a warrant out for his arrest on charges of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. May's third marriage lasted only a bit over a year. Her affair with Everett continued the entire time. She married her fourth husband in 1919 or 1920, but nothing else is known of him. On to the next player in the story of the cult, then. May's daughter, Ruth Wieland. She was an amateur dancer in Portland, and in 1917 she was cast in not one, but two movies directed by Louis Mumol. The Tale of a Dress and A Nugget in the Rough. The productions were small ones and had no distribution outside of Portland and the surrounding areas. The films, though on paper produced by Mumo and his film company, American Lifeograph, were principally financed by another company called the Starlight Film Company. The Starlight Film Company just happened to have the same mailing address, 1090 Simpson Street, as did May Otis. The Starlight Film Company, then, existed solely to advance the career of her daughter. No copies of either film exist today. In 1917, May sold her property in Portland to Fremont Everett. This done, mother and daughter both pulled up stakes and moved to Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, Ruth continued dancing, eventually going on to become a dance instructor. In May of 1919, Ruth Wieland married Jack Rickenball from Altoona, Pennsylvania, and around the same time, her mother also married a man named Holmes. She claimed to be married when she served as a witness at her daughter's wedding. No one has ever been able to determine anything about this Mr. Holmes, however. Not when he and May married, when they presumably divorced, or, technically, whether he even existed at all. The Wheeland Rickenball marriage didn't last too long. By 1921, the wheels were beginning to come off as Rickenball apparently resentful of his wife's career, began to get in fights quite a bit, and apparently became quite abusive towards Ruth as well. The two decided to live separately. In 1922, Ruth began to associate herself with a man she met at a dance hall she worked at, a 26-year-old named Arthur Osborne. Osborne was smitten with her, and she seems to have in part returned his affection. She and Osborne went on a few dates, although she was still married to Jack Rickenball, and, though separated, she and Jack still saw each other on occasion. It was around the time that she was seeing Arthur Osborne that Ruth and her mother began developing the belief system that would eventually become the cult of the Great Eleven. The two were writing a book, Ruth said. The book, which was given many different titles over the years, among them The Seventh Trumpet of Gabriel, The Lamb's Book of Life, the apple of God's eye, or the divine science of the works of the great sixth seal, was going to change the world forever, Ruth said. The book was meant to reveal the true meaning of the Bible, which was almost entirely in code, but the true word of God lay behind it, and the book was going to provide the key to understanding. 
It would also reveal the locations of hidden treasures, because of course it would. It was being dictated to the two by an angel, she said. In a very real sense, Arthur Osborne was to become the first victim of the con game the cult was to practice many times over in years to come. In order to devote herself full-time to finishing the book with her mother, Ruth said, she needed to get a divorce from Jack Rickenball. She managed to convince Arthur to go to his employer, Juan Matias Sanchez, who owned a ranch in Montebello, and borrow some money, enough for her to get divorced. In Osborne, under the impression that he and Ruth could that he and Ruth would get more serious when she had divorced Jack Rickenball, relented. He was disappointed, though, when the nature of his relationship with Ruth didn't change at all. And then, as should surprise no one, after a while, Ruth came to him again. She and her mother were planning to put together a religious order based on the revelations of the book. So, she needed more money. Arthur again got loans from Sanchez, and the cycle repeated several more times. Once again, money would be needed, and once again, Arthur would pay. And once again, no returns would be seen. Eventually, Juan Sanchez got fed up with this cycle. By this point, it was reported, Arthur had borrowed more than $1,000 from his employer, and while Juan was happy to loan the money to his employee, he was beginning to get fed up with the fact that he wasn't getting paid back. He threatened to fire Arthur Osborne unless he got his money back. Arthur's father had gotten wind of the scam as well, and wrote to May Otis to try to get the money back. May responded by sending a letter to Arthur's mother, threatening to murder her son. In the end, no money was returned, and keeping with the threats made, Arthur was fired from his job. At this point, May and Ruth left Los Angeles for a period of time, and returned to their old hometown of Portland. Here they began to recruit some followers, and moved back into the house of Jenny Otis and Walter Blackburn. While in Portland on their quote-unquote recruitment drive, May Otis began having an affair with her stepbrother, Walter's son Ward Blackburn, an affair which, which eventually led to marriage. Ward was actually a year younger than her daughter. Like her ex-husband George Bloom, however, there were rumors which seemed to hint at Ward Blackburn's having had pedophilic tendencies. In Cult of the Great Eleven, Samuel Fort brings up the cult leader's husbands, both of whom apparently had taste for young girls, and May's own fixation on the as-yet-unintroduced Willow Rhodes, and at least one other instance of her outright offering to purchase a child from its mother, and questions on whether May herself may have had similar inclinations. May and Ruth, as well as, I'm presuming, the Blackburns, returned now to Los Angeles. At any rate, the Blackburns were eventually in Los Angeles, so whether they went there at this point or not, they did eventually show up. Several of the other cultists recruited in Portland went to Los Angeles at this time as well, but a few others stayed in Portland, at least for a time. Among these was a lumberman from Merrill, Oregon, William P. Rhodes, and his wife Martha, Martha was, well, she had a reputation. She listed her occupation in 1920 as Christian science practitioner. She apparently operated as a sort of faith healer and was accused by a doctor in Klamath Falls of on at least three occasions contributing to the death of a child after parents sought her medical advice over that of doctors. Some start at rumors that Martha Rhodes, years prior to her association with the Great Eleven, 
had run a cult of her own. Others even claimed that the Rhodeses had a deceased son who was buried on their property in Merrill rather than in a cemetery. It was also rumored that the Rhodeses performed ceremonies at the grave of their son, rites meant to resurrect the boy. At any rate, the latter rumor would be in keeping with what Martha had proclaimed about herself. For according to her, she had not only the power to heal, but also the power to resurrect the dead. She claimed to have resurrected a dead individual on no less than five separate occasions. In fact, she said, she had once resurrected herself. Iva Eaton was a 15-year-old girl in Klamath Falls who apparently found herself pregnant by an 18-year-old. The two apparently planned to marry, but the father's family wouldn't allow it, and Iva's family appears to have not been in the picture. In 1908, she gave birth to a baby girl, who she named Iva Willa Eaton. Whoever the father was, his family was prominent in the community, and wary of being connected with an illegitimate child of their teenage son, they pressured Iva to put the baby up for adoption. But not a formal adoption, because that also might prove to be scandalous. So the child was given to William and Martha Rhodes, friends of the boy's parents. Renamed Willa Rhodes, her parents brought her into the cult. She had a sort of messianic reputation in the cult, but it's, it's a bit unclear as to exactly why. May had declared to William and Martha that their adopted daughter was one of the eleven queens in the cult. It is to the queens that the great eleven of the title refers. But what it, but what it was that designated one as one of these queens was never actually made clear. It should go without saying, however, that both May and Ruth were the first and second queens. While most of the cultists had returned to Los Angeles, Martha Rhodes recruited a military instructor from Portland named Gail Conde Banks, who she sent to Los Angeles to meet with May, who had taken up residence along with Ruth at 830 Acacia Street in Inglewood. Here, Banks served as a secretary of sorts, aiding the two in finishing the promised books. Now we come to 1924, and the end of the events is described in this episode. Ruth Wieland, now divorced and with Arthur Osborne out of the picture, married for a second time to a young Italian, Samuel Rizzio, who was only 17. The Rizzio family had, had originally come from Illinois. Angelo Rizzio, Samuel's father, had apparently become entangled with a Chicago gang affiliated with a notorious black hand, a sort of proto-mafia that extorted business owners of money and often killed them if they didn't pay up. But whether he had been the extorter or the extorted isn't known. Sam Rizzio himself had served time once before for check fraud. Finally, later that year, William and Martha Rhodes, and most importantly to the cult, Willa Rhodes, appeared in Los Angeles. With all the major players now in the same city, and the religious order called the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven, formally established by May, the activities of the cult would kick into high gear. And there I'll leave off for the first chapter of the story. It may have been a fairly short episode in certain ways, but I thought once all the major players were in Los Angeles, it would be a convenient cutoff point. In the next episode, we'll go into exactly what the cult believed, and what eventually brought them into the public eye.
And that's the end of this episode. As always, Alyssa's sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a que- if you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.